0: The following is a message from Reverend Ken Meldon of Wellsprings Congregation. Some of you might recognize these characters here. These are the brainchildren of Allie Brosh, who's the author of the blog and the book called Hyperbole and a Half. She has authored such uh, wonderful posts as How Kenny Loggins Ruined Christmas for Me. Many remembrances of childhood and also more serious fare as well, such as her very real and also very public struggle with depression. Very witty, very insightful, very real. So, this comes from a post she did a number of years ago about wanting to realize what it meant to be an adult. To do adult things and have a real adult life. So I'm going to read you her words describing this scene. She said, I would spontaneously decide that I really needed to start taking adulthood seriously. Adults clean their houses, so I need to clean my entire house. Everything, all the things in the house. And I would do that in addition to grocery shopping and going to the bank and doing all sorts of other adult things, all at once. And that would wear me out. So much so that I would no longer be able to maintain this newfound adulthood ritual. And so we see her starting out, Clean all the things! And then defeated, Clean all the things? (laughs) She's learning some limits to her enthusiasm, to her energy in young adulthood. There are many times in life when we learn that we cannot do all the things. And for many of us, being at midlife, those of us who already are, those of you who are going to be, those of you who already have been, learning that we cannot do all the things really hits home for many of us in these midlife years. We face it in some of the competing demands when we find ourselves the meat in the generational sandwich bringing along the younger kids, the children... The younger ones we care about, helping them to thrive and grow. And we see it sometimes in caring for the elders who sometimes are struggling and not doing so well and needing our help. We see that in the competing demands of being betwixt and between. We see it in the demands of a working life that at times may not leave us nearly enough space to keep heartful, meaningful friendships that have been ours for many years, alive. We see it in the many competing demands that may end up in the place for many of us in midlife, saying, I can't do all the things. And sometimes that can hurt, can frustrate us. Sometimes it's physically, we know we can't do all the things anymore. I see this literally, or I should say I do not see it I can't read this. I can read it when I do this. At some point, I'll give in and actually get bifocals like a good middle-aged person should. (laughs) But not yet, I'm holding on. These physical limits that we experience... I don't want to make that the focus of today's message, so today is going to be no screed or tirade against, you know, ED pills or plastic surgery. I mean, for, for, for some people, those things can be very, very liberating and very freeing. The point is, is that at some point, and very often in midlife, many of us, we are going to encounter some limit, physical, emotional, spiritual that cannot be managed or cannot be massaged. If our entire life's energy has been about workarounds for limits, trying to get around, under, on top of, instead of just facing those limits, a real limit that we encounter will feel like a dead end. And it can feel very painful. But it can also be, at the same time, an opportunity to grow our heart and grow our souls in ways we might have never imagined when we stop looking for the work around. There's a lot of emotional energy in this society, in our workplaces, in our families, in kind of this cultural expectation, this cultural stew that we find ourselves in. So I'm going to mention a phrase right now that's one of my least favorite phrases in our society. I'm going to get back to it a little later on in the message and tell you why. But this, this phrase, this phrase that I just feels bad in my mouth. You can be anything you want to be. I know that's well-intentioned for many people. But it ends up having a tough effect. Because it can make us feel, if we're not being everything or anything we can be, that maybe we're not enough. This is something that Brene Brown, who, whose teachings on shame and vulnerability and courage has, have been transformative for many of us. And she says that this culture in which we can be anything we want to be, we're told that, can actually be a culture of tremendous emotional scarcity. She writes, we can wake up in the morning and we say, I didn't get enough sleep. And we hit the pillow at night saying, I didn't get enough done. Never thin enough, never extraordinary enough, never strong enough, never good enough. And so she says, the opposite of scarcity is this. Enough. My kids are enough. I am enough. Enough. Notice that the healing corrective to the cultural stew of our tiredness, our stretchedness, our scarcity, is not perfect, it's not ideal, it's just simply that word, enough. To know ourselves as enough is to honestly reckon with the limits that all of us face. That, as we go through this life, we cannot do all the things, and sometimes that really sucks. I will raise both my hands up for that when I will tell you how much I feel sometimes that sucks. And yet the other side of recognizing that we cannot do all the things is that we may live into that space where maybe for some of us for the first time we recognize that simply we are enough, and that limits matter, And that non-recognition of limits leads to tremendous mindlessness and harmful, unskillful actions and carelessness. A number of years ago, I read an article about a so-called diet expert who was... um, most particularly working within the evangelical and fundamentalist communities. And I don't want to tar that entire evangelical world with, the, with, with one brush, with a dismissive brush, because, in fact, even though I almost entirely disagree with much of the theology and spirituality of the evangelical world, there are some people within that world who have some really big hearts and have some really compelling thoughts. This person is not one of them. <laughs> this person, is a uh, diet expert this nutrition, so-called expert, had a particular way of, of trying to teach the people with whom she worked how to eat well and eat healthy. And she did it in this particular way, and this interview was going on during an actual lunch, um, where this expert was. And the expert ordered six different things from the menu. Two appetizers, three entrees, one dessert, And she would take two to three bites of each and then ask the waiter to take it away and throw it out. Now, let's leave aside for just a moment the fact that people who struggle with addiction with eating or compulsive eating, it's not that easy. But let's also just recognize that when we live without limits, we create a lot of waste. We create a lot of garbage for someone else to clean up. We don't live with a sense of stewardship, a sense of responsibly using our gifts, our energies, and also recognizing the gifts of other people's labor, time, and energy. When we don't recognize limits, we waste a lot. And so the question becomes at many points in life, and especially at midlife, how do we deal with real limits? And also find joy within those limits. How do we find out the ways in which we are truly enough? Not just have enough, because some of us don't objectively. That's true, we know. But how do we get in touch with what is enough for us so that we can say, we are enough? To explore this right now, I want to turn to one of my favorite sacred texts. It's this. Groundhog Day. Uh, last week I talked about the literature of midlife, the literature of midlife and kind of the archetype of this literature of midlife being Dante's Divine Comedy. The journey through hell, purgatory, paradise. Called a Divine Comedy because it ends in a happy place. Well, Groundhog Day is another Divine Comedy. Many of us know what this story is about. It is about an embittered weatherman named Phil Connors, who wakes up one day after covering the annual Groundhog Day Festival in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and he wakes every day and every day and every day and every day, finding that for everyone else it's a new day, but for him it's always February 2nd. He cannot get out. He cannot get beyond. He's trapped there in February 2nd. It's interesting, especially that song we did about you know, 10,000 words. That's kind of a, um, a meaningful phrase in the Buddhist tradition. 10,000 kind of means like the myriad things, or if you will, all the things. Well, in the original script from Danny Rubin, who's a practicing Buddhist, the original writer of the script, Phil Connors was to be stuck On February 2nd, for 10,000 years. 10,000 years of February 2nd, over and over and over again. As it turns out in the movie, the way they filmed it, uh, Harold Ramis was the director, may he rest in peace. Many of us miss him, miss his comedies, miss his presence. It turns out it was only, I use that in air quotes, 10 or 20 years that he was stuck in February 2nd. We meet Phil Connors as a man at Midlife, who is in crisis but does not know it. He is embittered, he is scheming, he is dismissive, he is mean, he is cruel. He is always looking to one-up another person to get to the place that he wants to go. And he becomes a forecaster without a future. Stuck in February 2nd. And he helps to make sense of something I read many years ago. A guy named Soren Kierkegaard, great, brooding, Danish theologian. Leap of faith you might have heard associated with Kierkegaard. Not a lot of fun, Kierkegaard, but really insightful. Kierkegaard talked about in our spiritual development that there are uh, three stages in life's way. What he calls first the aesthetic, which is all about pleasure. The ethical, which is all about proving to ourselves and the world how good we are. And then the final stage and step, which he simply calls religious. And by religious, he doesn't mean dogma or dogmatic. He's talking about an inner sense of spirituality. Phil Connors lives out this stages of life's way, being stuck in February 2nd, day after day after day. The first step, the aesthetic, is all about pleasure seeking. It's as if he takes to heart those chilling and great words from the sex pistols. Where there's no future, there cannot be sin. I have no future. There's no repercussions. So he becomes a master of the one-night stand and indulging every single temptation he ever wants. He eats everything he wants. He cannot gain weight. He robs, he steals, he lies, he manipulates day after day after day for years on end. And here's the thing that he finds. When all the indulgences have been indulged and all the temptations tried there is no satisfaction whatsoever. When all the taboos have been tossed away, it's still to no avail. It turns out that a life of unlimited pleasure is a very limiting life. And so his quest for pleasure curdles, and he falls into a deep depression and despair and even repeated suicide attempts. But every day... He wakes up, and it's February 2nd. He cannot get out. And so his heart starts to open a little bit. And you can almost see this. We're not told it explicitly. You can almost see that maybe if he can prove to the heavens, the fates, to karma, to God, whatever, that he is simply good enough, if he is simply moral enough, he'll get to move on. We see this meaningfully in scenes repeated over and over and over again in the movie of the fact that he encounters an old man, very intentionally, a beggar. At first, he does this thing that, you know, God forgive me, maybe some of you have done as well too, where we see someone panhandling on the street, we kind of absentmindedly but not at all meaningfully pat our pockets and just kind of move on. He does that. But later, he recognizes that this old man, it's his last day of life. And so he starts treating this man with intense kindness. He's hungry, he offers him food, he's sick, he tries to care for him. But every day at the end of that day, the old man dies. No matter how good Phil Connors is trying to become, the old man dies. He gives CPR, he takes him to the ER, until finally, one night, the ER physician says, It was just his time. That's the biggie, and I'm talking about it next week. Some limits cannot be overcome, and our mortality is certainly the biggest one. No matter how good he is or strives to be, he still can't find release. And so perhaps recognizing he's tried the path of pleasure and indulgence, and he's tried the path of being good enough to prove that he deserves exit, he tries the last thing that's before him, which is what Kierkegaard called that final and ultimate stage. He becomes fully himself. He becomes a master ice sculptor. He becomes a master pianist. Things that probably take a decade to learn. And it's not as if he doesn't stop you know, he doesn't stop caring for other people. If you remember the movie, he saves day after day after day the mayor, played by his brother in real life, from choking. He gives him the Heimlich maneuver. We see what turns out to be the final big scene of the movie, the final day for him in February 2nd. We see him checking his watch and then recognizing he's running late and running on a full-on sprint with his hands out and his arms out wide open. And then we see a child fall from a tree down into his arms and he catches him saving this child from dying. And the child just tears off without any recognition. He says, you never thank me! (laughs) And then, I'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) He accepts his limits. He may not get out. He gives up hope of escape. He recognizes a challenging and still very truthful Buddhist aphorism that we are entitled to the work and not the reward. Because when we make the work the reward, then life really opens up. At Wellsprings, we might call it this way, That we can come to know the divine by living fully, loving generously, and being who we are called to be. That's Phil Connor's stories. Within this confine, within this trap, he uses his life energy to become the most that he can be for himself and for other people, but not to prove how good he is and not to get one over on someone else, but simply because that's where his soul opens. And so, yes, this is a big Hollywood movie and it has a happy ending. And one day he wakes up after living his day fully, lovingly, caringly, sharing his gifts like seed all around him and really enjoying his life. One day, the next day, he wakes up and he doesn't hear the same Sonny and Cher song playing on the radio. I got you, babe. And he says, do you know what today is? Today is tomorrow. But here's the thing. His contentedness arrives before his release. And that's the key. That even if the today wouldn't have been tomorrow and it would have been another February 2nd, he would have been contented. He lived within his limits and he flourished. Each of us has to find out for ourselves, for yourself. What your authentic limits are. We're not kids anymore, although I will really cop to the fact that someone I wish someone would, would come to me and give me an enforced timeout <laughs> would say, "You have done enough. more than enough. You are trying to do all the things. And don't you know that doing all the things is just going to end up frustrating you? You take a time out. But that's not how it is for many of us as adults. We have to find out what our authentic limits are and then enter into the space of finding out do we really act in the world because we believe we have something to prove good enough, smart enough, thin enough, rich enough, whatever it is. Or do we believe that we are enough? To live in this way means to recognize some of the wisdom of one of my favorite theologians of the past 20th century, Reinhold Niebuhr, who some of you might know through his association with the Serenity Prayer. A prayer that's all about learning to balance what we can affect and what we do not have control over. Niebuhr said we live in this place of paradox, in this necessary tension, if we really want to flourish as human beings, between an intersection between our finitude... Our finiteness and our freedom. Our finitude. We cannot do all the things. Someday we will die. And our freedom, that comes from recognizing that when we live within our limits, we can flourish. And so this is why I cannot stand. I don't even like the taste of it in my mouth that american very american dogma of you can be anyone or anything you want to be no i cannot the quest for that for years caused me and other people suffering i've been open with you from this pulpit before this isn't news to many of you i cannot be a drinker not if i want to be kind not if i want to be present not if i want to be loving I cannot be anything I want to be and thank the Lord. That limit liberates me. That is the bond that sets me free. So better than saying you can be anything you want to be, you can become anyone who you want to become, Instead, perhaps to say with the words of the son of a Unitarian clergyman, a famous poet, to many of you know E.E. Cummings, it takes real courage to grow up and become who you are called to be. It takes real courage to become not anyone, but to become yourself. I want to end with this story which for me is a wonderful story about living within our limits, sometimes even painful limits, and still knowing the soul can flourish. It was told to me by Tara Brock, who's one of my favorite, beloved teachers, psychologist and Buddhist meditation insight teacher. And she told this story after I knew something about her that she had shared with many others, which is that after a lifetime of athletic prowess and loving being out in nature, that she had discovered she had a degenerative nerve and tissue disease that eventually was going to take from her so many things that she loved. So when she offered this story, it had the authenticity of being real. It's an ancient story. It's about a man who finds himself one day imprisoned unjustly. Imprisoned against his will for something that he did not do. And it's a life sentence. And he finds so many ways to get out. So many ways to want to escape. Except none of them work. He is eventually returned right back to prison. And so a friend comes to see him, visit him one day in prison, and he says to the friend, I need you to give me help so I can get out of here. Next time the friend returns, he brings only one thing. A prayer rug. A prayer mat. And the guy in prison is like, what, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, like, can you imagine him? he, He wanted the cake with the file nail in the middle of it. But no, he got a prayer mat. And his friend said, this is the best that I can do for you. At this point, feeling he lacks any other choices, he develops his life on that prayer mat. Every day, at first with resistance, and then wondering what it's all about, and then finally recognizing that this is opening some space of freedom within his heart, and he's becoming less embittered. Every day. He is on that prayer mat, bringing his head down to the bottom of that prayer mat, praying, meditating with the visuals of that prayer mat. Until one day, face to the ground, looking at the patterns of this prayer mat that he has now seen for days, weeks, months, years, he notices something within it that he has never seen before a long, thin, silver strip that looks totally unlike the other threads. He pulls on it, and he sees what he is holding in his hand is a long, thin piece of metal that he is then able to fashion into a key that unlocks the door of his cell he is able to leave prison. Your limitations, my limitations, may be something very different than being unjustly held in jail. But I think that all of us face the prisons and the feeling of being trapped in our lives. There are times when we cannot get out and we can only get close and in learning to get close to our experience day in day out to get close to the things that feel like our limits and maybe then begins the beginning of our freedom the honest recognition that many of us experience at midlife we can't do all the things so we might as well stop trying And become ourselves. And perhaps recognize the meaning of an ancient Hebrew word. A word that I grew up singing around the Seder table. A simple word. Dayenu. It means simply, it is enough. Other things will come. We'll be given other gifts. We'll have other things taken away. But Dayenu simply means, it is enough. And so, to ask yourself, this day right here, who you are, are you enough? And if so, to recognize that from this place of gratitude and humility, we might spread our lives like seed. Serving, sharing, loving. And then finding, in perhaps the most surprising ways, that on the other side of all those real limitations, There has been a freedom waiting for us all along. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, whose other name is infinity. God, who represents everything. May we be released from feeling the burden of having to do all the things. That we might place down the crown of feeling that the only way we will ever be worthy is if we can master it all. And so today, may we enter into the messiness, the difficulty the pain, the joy, the love of each and every one of our lives and by so getting in touch recognize that we are enough to be able to deal with whatever is in front of us. Dainu. It is enough. We are enough. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's Wellsprings, the letters uu.org.